Well, good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Welcome to our final sermon in the book of Ephesians, at least for a while. We'll be in chapter 6, starting in verse 21 this morning. And as you turn there, I want to tell you a story. When I was about seven years old, my brother, sister, and I were watching television in the den while my mom was talking to her mom on the phone. We called my grandmother Nani, and she and Pop lived across town from us. Pop was at work, and Nani had just gotten home from the grocery store when my mom called her. And so she picked up the phone, and they started talking. Well, they got lost in conversation, as they tended to do, and after a while, Nani thought she heard a click on the line, like someone had picked up a phone. So she asked, did one of the kids get on the phone? My mom looked into the den and could see all of us. So she said, no, I I can see all the kids. Well, Nani was certain she had heard a click, so she responded by saying, Donna, that's my mom, get out of the house right now. There is someone in there. So imagine being my mom with a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 3-year-old and thinking there's potentially someone else in the house. She's terrified, but at the same time, our house had an atrium in the middle, and my mom could see through it to her bedroom and could see the only other phone in the house, and it was sitting undisturbed. So my mom said, no one is here. I can see the other phone. After a few seconds pause, my mom said, it must be coming from your house. So Nani replied, I don't think so. Let me go check. Right then a man's voice said, don't come back here. And my mom heard a scream and the line went dead. We started exploring Ephesians the weekend after Easter and have been cranking away for the past six months. This is our 25th sermon in the book, and I found it so edifying and encouraging for us to spend this time together studying Scripture and talking about all the vast peaks of Pauline theology. Now, you may be thinking, what happened to Nani? And you should be, because endings are important. And if you want to know how this particular story ends, then you've got to pay attention to the rest of this sermon. You see, endings are important, but for some reason when it comes to Paul's letters, we often just skip over the ending as if it's just the signature line on the email. It's just formal and cursory, and we give it no thought at all. Grace and peace and all that jazz, they're all the same, so let's just fast forward to the good stuff, whatever you personally think the good stuff may be. But if you've ever gotten to the end of an epistle and thought, meh, then you've really missed something. You see, in 2 Timothy, Paul writes this in chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture, not just the body of the letter, but the greetings and the genealogies, and yes, even the concluding sections, it's all inspired It's all inerrant and thus intrinsically important. That's why we spent 50 minutes on the opening two verses of the book and why we're setting aside an entire week for this conclusion. We want to finish strong, not like those YouTube videos where someone started celebrating too early and lost the race at the very last second. We want to run hard all the way to the end of the book of Ephesians. And as I was studying for this concluding section, I I ran across a really helpful thesis where the author talked about the closings of Paul's letters in a way that I'd never thought of or heard of before. He argued that Paul's letter closings are not insignificant, but they're carefully constructed in order to summarize some of the major 
uh, themes of each individual book, which is fascinating. Each closing thus presents some sort of unique contribution to summarize or recapitulate various themes of that particular book. In other words, what he's saying is that Paul adapts the endings of each book in order to communicate certain nuances unique to that particular book. So let me give you a few examples of this. If you're reading the book of 1 Thessalonians and you get to the end in chapter 5, verse 23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is fascinating because sanctification and the perusia or the coming of Christ are major themes emphasized in that letter, perhaps more than all of uh, Paul's other letters. And if you're reading Galatians and you get to the end, Paul ends with a reminder that circumcision counts for nothing and that the true Israel is composed of Jew and Gentile, which again are major themes of the letter to the church in Galatia. If you get to Romans and you get to the end, Paul ends with a doxology, which was also a major turning point in the book of Romans from chapters 12, uh, from chapter 11 into chapter 12. And although it might not be as immediately evident as we read the book of Ephesians, I think we can see something of this same tendency even in the conclusion to this letter. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in uh, together. So first, let me ask you just to pray for yourself. Ask that the Lord would give you a united heart this morning, that He would open your eyes, that you might behold wonderful things in His Word, protect you from distraction or any work of the enemy, any apathy you might be feeling, and then I'd ask that you pray the same thing for those around you, whether it's your husband or wife or children or friend or even a stranger. The Lord would give us a collective sense of encouragement and excitement and eagerness to hear His Word. And then would you pray for me that the Lord would help me to be faithful and bold. So Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for the opportunity for us to gather together to hear Your Word. We pray that You would do what You do with Your Word, which is that you would correct us and encourage us and admonish us and rebuke us and challenge us, convict us, sanctify us, that we might look more like your Son, that we might love each other and experience peace and faith and love and grace and all of the rich blessings of this passage. We ask these things because you're a good Father and you give good gifts. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 6 Verses 21 through 22, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. I got my first cell phone at the age of 23. It was 2001. I had just graduated from college and moved to Dallas and Rather than get a landline in my apartment, I opted for a cell. And for the first time in my life, I didn't have to worry about missing a call or waiting for uh, a call at home. Opportunities for reaching people today are ubiquitous. If you want to know how someone's doing, you can call them, you can text them, email them, check, check their Facebook or Twitter status, drive by their house, etc. But even 20 years ago, that was not necessarily the case. 
When I was a kid, my great-grandmother still had one of those big rotary phones. And this past week, we went out to eat with uh, Dave Young, one of the members here, and we're asking him a bunch of questions about the good old days, as if he could remember his first telegraph or what it must have been like when the Pony Express would drop off a letter when he was a little boy. So imagine all the way back in the first century, communication was sketchy, even though the Roman Empire had a very sophisticated postal service relative to its time. But you couldn't just log into an app and see where your friends were or what they were doing. And Paul had spent two years ministering Ephesus, according to the book of Acts. These are his friends. And so he sends Tychicus to them, probably carrying the very letter that Paul is writing here. So who is Tychicus? Probably it was pronounced something more like Tychicus, but we'll just say Tychicus because it's a little easier in English. His name means fortuitous or fortunate. I bet his friends called him lucky. And what do we know about him? Well, he's mentioned a total of five times in the New Testament. Our first uh, introduction to him is in Acts 20, where Paul is listing uh, the names of those who are ministering with him in his missionary journeys. We next find him mentioned here in Ephesians and then Colossians, which were written about the same time. In Colossians, it says in uh, chapter 4, verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. The similar sort of idea of what we see here in Ephesians. In Titus, chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. And then the last place we see him, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9-12. through 12, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, perhaps mentioning this same ascending of him. So who was he? Well, according to the Scripture, he's a faithful and beloved brother from Asia who was a traveling partner on Paul's missionary journeys and was trusted enough to bear news and probably even carried a number of the Pauline epistles to individual churches. And what was he sent to do? Verse 21, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. In verse 22, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Now, we might read this through a modern narcissistic lens whereby we post something on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter in order to boast and to be seen. We need to let people know about what we ate or where we went or who we're with, but that's not Paul's desire. His desire is not to exalt himself, but to encourage the Ephesians. Remember, he's writing this book from prison in the midst of his own distress while imprisoned. He's thinking of others and seeking to make disciples. He writes this letter as an apostle and shepherd to the Ephesians, but he sends Tychicus as a brother and friend to the Ephesians. He is anxious to hear of what is happening since he left, and he is anxious for them to know how he is. Well, speaking of wanting to know how someone is, let's pick up the story of Nani and the voice on the other line. So my mom hears a scream, and then the line goes dead. So my mom is terrified. She's petrified. She gathers up all of us children. She locks us in the car in the driveway. She runs next door to our next door neighbor and then asks him if he would drive her to Nani's house because she was too disturbed and distressed to drive. We arrive 
but the cops were already there. Apparently, immediately after screaming, Nani had ran next door to her neighbor and called the police, but by the time the police showed up, there was no one in the house. But there was a large imprint or indentation on the bed where someone had been sitting next to the telephone. Because of the way that her house was laid out, there was no exit except through a common area where Nani was talking on the phone. So they think that he was trapped back in her bedroom when she got home, and so he got on the line to listen for an opportunity to get out of the house without her seeing him. They never caught the guy, but she was okay. She was obviously a bit rattled, but after the police had checked everything out and we had arrived, she felt a much greater sense of relief and recounted the story to us. See, we were concerned about Nani, and so we raced across town. Paul was concerned that the Ephesians would be concerned about him, so he sends Tychicus for their relief and peace. Speaking of peace, let's look at verse 23. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul concludes the letter with a double benediction of peace in verse 23 and grace in verse 24. The word benediction is formed from two Latin words, meaning good word. In Greek, it's a eulogy, which reminds us of a funeral. But originally, it was just used as any blessing. We speak of a a eulogy or a final good word, so Paul writes a benediction or a final good word as his blessing upon the church in Ephesus. And to understand this benediction, I want us to do a little exercise. I want each of us in this room this morning to think of one person. Think of one person that you love, that you adore, that you treasure. Could be your spouse, could be your child, your best friend, or your parent, or sibling. Now you have that person in your mind. And if I told you you had one wish for them, and it would be granted, anything that you want, one wish, what would it be? A new house? A new car? A good job, a full bank account, a spouse, a long life. Three more wishes, whatever it might be. You see, if you want to know what you treasure and value, just think of what you would give to someone that you love if you could give them anything. Well, when Paul wishes the best that he can imagine upon the Ephesians, he doesn't bless them with hopes of health or wealth or comfort or luxury. He writes them a letter. And he speaks of peace, love, faith, and grace. Peace, love, faith, and grace. If it's true that Paul's conclusions often contain clues to unpack the meaning of individual letters, then these words are somewhat thematic for the entire book of Ephesians. So that's what we want to unpack this morning. His benediction, his blessing begins with peace. But I want to skip that for a second and then we'll come back to it. Instead, I want to focus on the recipients of peace, that is, brothers. Peace be to the brothers. Throughout our exploration of Ephesians over the past six months, we've encountered the fatherhood of God. We've seen it emphasized in a few places. Ephesians 3, 14 through 15. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. If we celebrate the fatherhood of God, then by implication we celebrate the brotherhood of the saints. I'm not sure how many of you have siblings or what your relationship was like. I'm the middle child with an older brother and a younger sister. 
I've always had a good relationship with both of them. My sister lives in the Houston area, but my brother is actually a member here. Growing up, we loved to compete in just about anything. We'd play tennis or basketball or see who can throw a rock further or hit a tree or just about anything else. Competition was kind of a love language for the Ashley family. There were some rocky moments along the way, like the time I was watching TV and Brad, for no reason whatsoever, just completely blindsided me by running up behind me and kicking me in the head. He broke two toes, and we also realized that my hard-headedness was as physical as it was spiritual. But I also remember the time that I stepped on a wooden board in the backyard and a rusty nail went through my foot and through my shoe, and my brother picked me up in his arms and carried me inside the house and never once mocked my tears. Sometimes we might take it for granted that Scripture calls us brother, but we shouldn't. This is not just some nickname like sport or chief. It's not cliche. It's pointing to this theological reality of the redefinition of the family in light of the new covenant. While the physical family is still important, there is a higher value placed on the spiritual family within the context of Scripture. Christ's blood is thicker than our own. Thus, when we call each other brother or sister, there's a deep theological meaning embedded into those words, and with them, the idea of belonging, service, sacrifice, deference, and love. Do you feel that as you look around this room? Do you feel that these are your brothers and your sisters? Do you have that sense of belonging and service and sacrifice and deference and love? And speaking of love, that's what Paul writes next. He says, love with faith. Both of those terms are used often in Ephesians. Love is mentioned 20 times, while faith or faithful is used about 10 times. I think that the idea here is that God's love flows down in this benediction to His people and waters the seeds of faith. It's similar to what we saw in chapter 3, which connected faith and love together. Verses 14 through 19, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We need love to grant us this faith. And we need faith to believe in this kind of love. When we got to chapter 4, we talked about the transition from the indicatives of chapters 1 through 3 to the imperatives of chapters 4 through 6. From what God has done to how we are to respond in light of what He has done. In a sense... Chapters 1 through 3 show us how God has loved us. And chapters 4 through 6 show us how we are to love Him in light of how He has loved us. And we need faith to believe all these truths and to pursue these virtues. So we see love and faith interwoven throughout the book. Now let's rewind a bit to peace, which is explicitly mentioned seven times in Ephesians. And it's a huge theme of the book. Ephesians 1, 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 14 through 17, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances 
that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians six fifteen and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So what is peace? We spend a lot of time in the book of Ephesians talking about peace, which in a biblical sense has a holistic connotation. If you recall, we talked about this fourfold division of the fall, where sin has caused separation not only between man and God, exemplified in things like idolatry, but also between man and wife, exemplified in adultery and divorce and marital strife. It's also created separation between man and his fellow man, resulting in things like murder and theft. And between man and creation, as the Scripture says, that thorns and thistles are now a part of our work. And natural disasters that threaten our lives like famine and floods. There's this fourfold division of the fall, and with that division comes enmity and struggle, and peace is the solution. It's the cessation of hostility in all areas. In Hebrew, it's called shalom, peace and wellness and welfare. And Ephesians has reminded us that Jesus and Jesus alone is our peace, and the Spirit makes peace, and that the gospel is called the gospel of peace. This is what Paul's asking for the Ephesians. Peace. Peace with each other and with God. Emotional, spiritual, mental, physical, social. Again, it's holistic. One day we'll know the fullness of this peace when Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, returns and makes all things new and brings about an ultimate and eternal shalom. But even now we have a foretaste or a peace, a little piece of this peace because of the gospel. Last week, we talked about an area of our life with ongoing hostility. We're no longer at war with God. We're no longer at war with each other, but we are at war with sin and Satan's schemes. A few years ago, I went to South Sudan, and on the way back, we had to pass through Uganda, so a few of our team members uh, decided to do a little two-day safari. And the first rule of safari was don't get out of the Jeep. We'd seen hippos and crocs and a lion and hyena, and there were cobras and all kinds of other things there. Never get out of the Jeep, our guide said. But then the Jeep broke down. And so the guide asked me and another guide to get out and to push it so he could pop the clutch. So I got out, and while he was tinkering under the hood, I started walking around a little bit until I got 40 or 50 yards from the Jeep, and all of a sudden my hair stood up on my neck as I realized that I was much too far from the vehicle. And that just about anything that wanted to attack me could easily make it to me before I could make it back to the vehicle. In light of last week's sermon on spiritual warfare, I'm reminded that the devil is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You ever watch videos of a lion attacking prey? They tend to avoid the pack. 
They look for the stragglers, which is why Ephesians has so deeply stressed the importance of unity and community between Jew and Gentile. Unity and community within the body. Unity and community within the bride of Christ. Unity and community within uh, the covenant community that is the church. If you're trying to manhandle your sanctification and salvation all by yourself, then you're wandering into the wilderness alone, just waiting, asking to be attacked. That's why we stress gathering together, not only here on Sundays, but in community groups and other means of being deeply embedded in each other's lives because we need each other. The means for us experiencing this peace is through the church community. And in order for this peace and for protection in this warfare, we need grace, which is what Paul speaks of next. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptibles, verse 24. A couple of years back, Casey's parents took us to New York, and I got to see my first Broadway musical. I'd intentionally avoided musicals for my first 35 years of life, but then I saw The Lion King in London and thought it was incredible. So by the time we were in New York, I was actually excited about the idea of seeing a musical. And so when Casey's parents asked us what we'd like to see, I said, Les Miserables. It was an incredible performance, but an even more incredible story and a classic picture illustration of grace. I'm going to warn you, I'm about to give a spoiler alert, but since it was first published in 1862, you've had 155 years to check it out, so I don't feel bad if I ruin this for you. The story concerns Jean Valjean, who's a career criminal, and he gets released from prison, and he goes about stealing some silverware from this kind, benevolent bishop. But when the police catch Valjean and return him and the silverware to the bishop, the bishop covers for him. The bishop says, no, he didn't steal this. I gave him the silverware as a gift. Not only that, but the bishop even also gives him some extremely valuable silver candlesticks in an over-the-top demonstration of grace. This becomes a formative moment in Valjean's story as this little taste of grace changes the entire trajectory of his life. One of the most common definitions or descriptions of grace within the church is unmerited favor. And that's correct. Grace is unmerited favor. But at the same time, there's a sense in which that definition doesn't really plumb the depths of the biblical concept of grace. See, grace isn't just unmerited favor, it's demerited favor. Not only that we have not earned it, we have actively resisted and opposed the giver of grace. It isn't like the bishop is just giving an undeserved gift to an innocent Valjean, but he's giving an extravagant extravagant gift to the very one who had stolen from him. Likewise, when we receive this grace, we're not receiving it as those who are neutral or those who are innocent. We're glory thieves. We're cosmic rebels guilty of treason and sin at enmity with God when He gives us grace. Bear in mind what we read in Ephesians 2, verses 1 
through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In our depravity, grace is not just unmerited, it's demerited. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That is grace. You were dead and disobedient, living in darkness and following fleshly desires. You were enemies and by nature children of wrath. And yet God loved you and made you His children. That's grace. Not just something you didn't merit, but something you had actively resisted. It isn't just that you didn't deserve anything. You deserved something. You deserved wrath and judgment and condemnation. And instead, you received grace, life, peace, righteousness, love. You weren't stuck in neutral. You were in reverse with the pedal pushed all the way down. In light of this, every single blessing, every single benefit that we've encountered in the book of Ephesians is grace. There's grace in being blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in chapter 1. There's grace in predestination and election. Without the grace of predestination and election, every single one of us would face condemnation and judgment because we naturally love sin and hate the things of God. We see our need for grace as we talk about human depravity and sin. There's grace in chapter 2 in Jewish and Gentile relations. It's grace that called Abraham from being a moon worshiper in Ur and grace that grafts Gentiles into that promise. It's grace that allows Christians to eat bacon and to work on the Sabbath while we don't offer sacrifices or command circumcision. The answer is grace that we're no longer under the Mosaic law. There's grace and community and unity within the church in light of God making us into a new body, many members and a new family and many brothers and sisters. We saw grace as we talked about putting off the old man and putting on the new. There's grace in our speech and words. Grace in putting to death anger, envy, and pride. Grace in prayer and worship. Grace in marriage and parenting. Grace in understanding work and making sense of slavery in Scripture. Grace and spiritual gifts and spiritual warfare. Grace and sanctification and the foundation of the gospel and how to fight sin. Grace in our union with Christ and fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of the saints. Grace in being given a new identity. We are no longer in Adam or in sin or in darkness. We are in Christ and thus in life and righteousness and hope and joy. Grace began the book and ends the book. It's the inclusio or the bookend And everything in between is grace because all of God's dealings with His people are of grace. Let me say that again because I think all of us know it to some extent, but none of us us really know it as we should and as we want. All of God's dealing with His people are of grace. If we could somehow embrace that this morning, then the trajectory of our lives would be changed as was John Valjean's. Even this letter itself is grace. It's God's grace to reveal Himself to us. 
Revelation and doctrine and theology are not bad words. They're grace. It's a grace to know God more and to love God more and to know more about God because it raises the ceiling for our worship and joy and sanctification. If I were to think of any one thing to give to Parkway, a people I love, a people that I treasure, a people that I adore, it would be the Word of God. That's the greatest gift I can imagine. Which is why we do things like theological equipping and expository preaching. Why we don't just do child care with kids. and Why the youth are studying and not just being entertained. We're storing up grace for today and for the day ahead when you need it most. Like Joseph storing up grain in Egypt. Paul ends by saying this grace is for all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And if you love Jesus Christ, then your love is incorruptible. That is the type of love that God grants to His people. This reminds me of those candles that never go out when you blow on them. They keep coming back. Likewise, circumstances blow, but love keeps stoking the fires of faith. That's love for the Christian. It's a love with faith birthed in grace and therefore incorruptible and undying And this love isn't something we just try hard to muster up on our own. Bear in mind that this is a benediction and Paul is asking God to provide us with peace, faith, grace, and even love. And this is cyclical. God graciously gives love and then lovingly gives grace to all who have that love. This is the book of Ephesians in summary. We've spent 25 weeks walking through the book. And I feel on some level as though I know so much more about it, and yet there's a sense in which we've just barely scratched the surface in exploring the height, depth, width, length of peace, love, faith, and grace. In a second, I'm going to pray, and then we will begin to pass out the elements to take communion together. And as we do, I want us to spend that time thinking about these four glorious works of God in our lives, peace, love, faith and grace as we conclude our time together in Ephesians. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray.